0: I was um, thinking about that song and just a couple things that happened. um, While I was up in Kansas City last week, um, one was a guy just shared briefly his testimony. And uh, it's one of those things where immediately I I thought to myself that I am no different. Um, I always share this, uh, that there's one place I feel like in Scripture that I could argue and take exception with Scripture and say, what? And that's where Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. I I, I could easily run down the list of things and say, no, Paul, you and I could, we could go toe-to-toe right there. Um, And I I, I hope that doesn't come across as arrogant because I'm not proud of my sin. Um, And and just singing that song, and and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about why we're doing that song right now, is we're planning on uh, an Easter uh, worship service that's uh, similar to what we did last year. Last year we did From the Trial to the Tomb and we had uh, David Steinquest playing uh, timpani but also a, a, um, a snare drum that was like the dirge march through, through the, 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 the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And this year we're going to be doing something similar. Um, I don't want to give it away yet. Um, so hopefully that's a, a, a good little commercial. But we're, that's going to be one of the songs that we do And uh, there's a couple more that we're planning and looking into these things. But I want to do a little side note. I think this will tie right into where we're going to go this morning. This is just impressed upon me as we were singing that song. I'm turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 really quickly. When I think about what Christ did for us, this is why we needed to be set free. Listen to Romans 3, starting in verse, uh, let's just read 9. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul's addressing the Jews and the Gentiles both, trying to establish why the gospel is, is for all men. And he says, No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, now listen to this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and you'll probably be familiar with this passage as well but I I just want to put these in context with that song and where we're going to be in the the text this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, this is probably one of the most uh, convicting passages of the scripture to me Um, and and yet one of the most liberating at the same time. Listen to what we read in Ephesians 2 and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me stop. None is righteous, no, not one. None seeks after God. What is our condition? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us, me included. As I mentioned, I could argue about being the chief of sinners. I know I'm hard. I know the way I think. I know that I don't measure up to God's standard. And listen to what he says. He said, we were like children, who are people who followed after the prince of the world. Look at this. In, uh, he's in verse 2 again, he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now listen to verse 3. Among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. You see the desperate need we have? Listen to this further. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, we're in a series called Bold Love. See, Christ is that bold love of God the Father extended to us. We sing that song, uh, Reckless Love. Is that what the title of it is? Perry and I have talked a lot about that song. Because this is a side note, but this comes in, uh, and and maybe you all are going to get a lot of dump of my mind because it's stretched really thin this morning. Sorry. But I don't like the, the idea of the reckless love of God. Can I be really blunt? Because God's love has never been reckless. He is so intentional. But I get the wording of that. Because from my perspective, everything that he's done is absolutely reckless because I would never do it that way. So, so I think it's a song that utilizes that word from a, a, a human vantage point, but, but I want to clarify this. God has never been reckless in his love for you. He's poured himself out intentionally from the foundation of the world. If you go back and read that in Ephesians 1, it is he waited for the fullness of time to send Jesus and there was nothing reckless about it even though from my vantage point it seems that way okay so let's keep reading here God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved what a joyous thing so when we come to Easter in just a a short month and a half or so It is about this very thing, that we have been made alive in Christ because Christ rose from the dead. We ought to celebrate that with zeal and passion. And what is the root of that? It's his great love. And let's keep reading. Um, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, when we think about what Christ did to release us from the chains of sin and the bondage that we were born into as Adam and Eve's descendants him being our head we are now free because Christ is our head. Great doctrinal stuff but it is the reality of the gospel and folks I'm going to tell you this, the struggle is and we'll jump into kind of our, our direction for bold love this morning, how to love an evil person. If I go back to Ephesians 2 and I think about how I was once one of these that was walking, living out the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and I was by nature a child of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, guess what? I can be evil. I can be evil. I remember days I was. I, I remember days that I acted so ugly and wrong, especially to four people in particular. Can you guess who they were? my mom and my dad thank you Kevin that's exactly that's the top of the list the next two are my brothers (laughs) that's the truth right our families typically get the worst of us and I remember when I was evil towards them and I don't like to confess that but it's the truth and all of us because we are like the rest of mankind by nature children of wrath we have that propensity now let me say this about couple things I want to remind you of a, a few things to start with this morning first of all we we need to have this perspective about a maturing disciple because here's the, the deal have any of us arrived yet in our spiritual walk and if don't you dare raise your hand <laughs> okay. let me save you the embarrassment no you have not okay I have not either praise God I know Katie's like praise God he's not arrived there's still so much work the Lord gets to do on him What's he just the Lord please hurry up you know Y'all are all thinking the same thing about your spouse. Don't, Don't look at me like that. I'm weird. So here's the key. If we haven't arrived yet, we're all what? Maturing disciples. If we are followers of Christ, if we have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus, we are all maturing disciples. And here's the thing. A maturing disciple is one who stewards the resource of love well. Okay? That is hard that is hard. I know some of you, I know some of your stories, I know some of y'all have people in your lives that are evil towards you, and I've been there. I've had people act in evil towards me, and it is so hard to steward the resource of love well in those moments, but we're called to that. We're called to help them see their desperate need for Jesus too, and that's the goal, that, that the Lord would use us to love them in such a manner that they would repent and call upon Jesus and surrender so that there would be a transformation in their own life. So, let me remind you of our definition of love. Love is a sacrifice given to the undeserving. Me, you, because we are all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The undeserving. We've received it. We need to try to extend that to others. So love is a sacrifice given to the undeserving that opens the door to restoration of a relationship with the Father, with others, and even with ourselves. Because if we don't get this idea of love right with the Lord first, guys, we can't understand how we even rightly relate to ourselves. Because when we become more and more sensitive about our ongoing need for the grace of God to work in our lives on a daily basis then we're rightly relating with the Father. It's an ongoing thing every day. Can I really encourage you with this? Don't make church, your, your faith life, about a church service on Sunday or Wednesday. That's not enough. It's got to be daily. It's got to be daily. And I don't know about you, but I know this. The ebbs and flows in my life, when I'm not in a daily routine with the Lord, this I feel down. I, I don't feel satisfied by Him. I feel... Um, Just a a sense of need constantly. But when I walk appropriately in daily devotion and those kind of things, the Lord, there's something different about the level of peace, the level of confidence, the level of assurance, and who I am in Christ. It's not about me. It's about who He is making me into. And walking with Him intimately daily is a key to that. And that's part of this whole thing about uh, loving well. So remember, we're utilizing labels now. I don't like labels, and I would certainly encourage you with this: don't uh, don't employ a label and think that you're unequivocally right. Because as soon as you employ the label, and you're looking at, at someone saying, "Oh yeah, I've got to t- totally know how they're packaged," it's that you're seeing them with the log in your own eye. It's that distorts your vision instead of the speck in theirs. You get that? And I know I'm butchering that metaphor right now, but you get the image the picture that we've got to be careful about how we uh categorize uh so we're using three of those but no one's going to fit into these perfectly okay so uh, a couple weeks ago i talked i talked about loving a normal sinner today is going to be about loving an evil person next week is going to be about loving a fool i've been a fool too i can tell you some stories maybe next week y'all go really yeah it was a foolish thing um so you'll get to hear that um So, here's, let me give you this definition. What is an evil person? I think this is the key. Evil is, for the most part, unfeeling. Have you ever been around that person who is emotionally detached? They they won't allow themselves to enter into the heart of what people are really experiencing, though they seem like they engage well. They, they, they're, it's like they can go to the funeral and they can put on the airs, but the truth is, you know, they're really not relating. Does that make sense? So they, um, they will not actually engage with the effect that they're having on who they're being evil towards. Does that make sense? It's like they, they act, they say, oh, yeah, I know those things, but they don't realize any of the consequences of what really their behavior is doing. So why is evil... So dangerous. Let me give you this reason. See, the normal sinner that we talked about a couple weeks ago—they delay another's hope um, uh, when we when they engage with people. They prevent that hope from coming about. And so, when we have that normal sinner uh, engaging with us, it's like oh, I want to experience hope, but we just can't get there. Okay. The difference is an evil person. Attempts to betray and entrap the innocent in bondage of hopelessness. And listen to this, I like this part. Stealing the sense of what could be. So it's not the delay of it, it's actually trying to rob and steal and prevent hope from happening. So let me pause there, because I want you to think about this. Have you ever had somebody stealing your hope? Have you ever had somebody that creates a bondage where you can't escape that, that, the negative aspects of that relationship and it's just constantly wearing and you don't see any end in sight versus that normal person that you're like, man, it just, this stinks. You know, it's delayed, but you know you're going to overcome that somehow, a little, little bit of time. But the evil person, you don't feel like there's an end in sight. I've had it and it is no fun. it it actually for me i have a little bit of ocd tendencies and that can consume my life because i want to figure out how to overcome it and there's times that i simply can't because it's not my responsibility to overcome that but we're going to address what we do in those situations okay now are y'all with me is this clear okay good good um Here's, let me, let me read this, because I think this is good. Um, evil may exhibit normal emotion at appropriate points, but the feelings are not connected to those who are suffering or who are rejoicing. They're just a facade that hide a coldness of heart. Let's look at uh, a couple passages. Turn over to Psalm chapter 7. I think these are good passages to hang on to. Psalm 7. Verses 12 through 16. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. So, so, if, if someone does not repent God is getting ready to bring destruction you get that picture that he's sharpening his sword students you, you all know what a whetstone is okay I love this I, I learned it probably when I was in about sixth or seventh grade a whetstone is a, a smooth stone that you actually wet a little bit with water and then it's what you sharpen a knife on so you put the knife both blades uh, or both directions to sharpen both sides of the blade and that's called a whetstone, W-H-E-T um, and so when you get this picture of God wetting his sword it's that he's sharpening this sword to bring destruction and then he's doing what next? He has bent and ready his bow All right. now I'm not a bow hunter uh, my shoulders messed up from years of tennis playing so I can't pull draw a bow back but when I've tried to draw a compound bow back you realize how powerful that thing is and you can hold a compound. That's the, the, the beauty of a compound is once you get it back in that notch. Am I right, Dan? It's a little easier to hold. And you can hold it there ready. But it's a stronger release too. Um, and that's a, a great picture here of what God's doing. So continue reading. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies he makes a pit digging it out and he falls into the hole that he has made his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends now i'm going to give you a first principle here of dealing with an evil person know this god is sovereign he will handle the evil person sometimes it is a long process for them to fall into their own traps but the Lord will seek out righteousness. Here's the image. When it talks about making a pit and digging it out and falls into the hole that he's made, that was actually a war tactic tactic back then. And so they would uh, have an enemy coming against them, they would dig those pits waiting for them. But then here's the thing. The enemy wouldn't fall in the pit. The evil person would forget about where that pit was, and then they would go back in that area and fall in again. That actually would happen okay so that's the image that god is giving us in his word is that they become so foolish in their uh, in their blindness of their anger and their lies and deceit that the lord brings about uh, destruction upon them so our first responsibility is to wait on the lord to, to wait on his sovereign control in these situations when we do that what does that drive us to i think the first weapon of any warfare is prayerful dependence Does that make sense? That we just wait on the Lord in prayer to say, Lord, this is your uh, situation to handle. Turn over to uh, Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Continue this thought a little bit further. Isn't it great that that, uh, these things are addressed in Scripture? Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself on in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Mm. See, he's picking this out. Let's keep reading just for the sake of um, seeing where this is context, uh, or the context of this verse. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Who can we trust? When the evil person comes against you, their ways are going to be known, and it may not be immediately, but we can trust the Lord. Now, let me, let me uh, ask you this, because I, I, I was thinking about how biblically... Um, we could expose who really wrestled with uh, evil in their lives. Can you all think of anybody? Let's, let's do a little bit of feedback and talking. Somebody in scripture. David. How, how did David see evil? Saul. So, so when we have David and Saul, okay, Saul is king. And he has turned evil and taken the spear and wants to slay David because he has, has just become so hard-hearted about him losing his kingdom. Okay? There was certainly an evilness to him, even though the Spirit of God was removed from him okay? because of uh, the Lord's plans. Somebody else. Who else can you think of in Scripture? Joseph, in what way? Yeah, and so, Amy, that's a great illustration because you can follow Joseph's uh, account all through the end of Genesis, and all of these terrible things happened to him because he was living to please the Lord, but but I think he also grew a little bit in pride to share some of those things with his brothers, and so when he shared the vision about his uh, the, the brothers bowing down to him and that, that came about, they got upset. They threw him in the pit. They sent him off to Egypt. He was then... Uh, uh, basically persecuted by potiphar's wife and he ended up in prison and then from there he struggles in prison and then he ultimately interprets pharaoh's dream and he rises to a a position and he says at the end of his life what all these things god meant for good And, and, and i'm paraphrasing but that's the gist of it so he was a guy who walked with the sovereignty of god in the midst of people treating him in evil ways okay who else Jonah, in what way do you think evil? Yeah, okay. So, in that, uh, Jason, he rejected the Lord and his plan and didn't, uh, in this kind of a weird dynamic, because he's against the Lord. Running. And then when the storm comes up, he's like, hey, I'm the reason. Throw me in the, the water. And then, he, so he's like, he recognizes this all along. So he's doing a dance with that throughout. Yeah. So let me tell you who I thought about. I'm ask you to turn over to Esther. I'm going to break this down. So if you need a little help finding Esther, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm. Okay. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm. So it's kind of a, a short book. So I want you to start with me in chapter three so the the character here that we're going to follow a little bit is uh, three really um actually we'll go with four um Haman is the key one that we watch his life uh and the disaster of, of this evil man unfold you also have King Ahasuerus you have Esther his wife who's a Jew and you have Mordecai the uncle of Queen Esther okay who's also a Jew So let's let's look at a couple things right here in in chapter 3. Verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, uh, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And there's nothing that Haman had done yet that we see that should have caused him to be exalted. Evidently, he was just a guy that the king really liked. Um, So verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, now remember, why would Mordecai not bow down to Haman? Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. He was a Jew. He was going to only worship the true and living God, okay? And and so he was not about to bow down to Haman. Then the king's, verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him, day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, listen to this, Haman was filled with fury. That's very typical of the evil person. When things begin to confront them, they get furious. They respond in this anger that is over the top, okay, because they want to control things. Now, I'll pick up and uh, let's keep reading, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, now see, here's, again, where an evil person, who, who's uh, Haman, uh, Haman's offense with? Mordecai. But what does Haman seek to do? destroy all the Jews. So he he takes this one, let's say he was even just in his conflict, he should have just taken that issue up with Mordecai, but instead he takes issue with all of Jews, all of the Jews, okay? So it's a a over-the-top response. Now let's keep reading in verse 7. In the first month, which was in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth of the uh, year of King Ahasuerus, now what month was it? The first month, okay? Remember that for just a second. They cast pure, which is they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month. How many months did they cast lots? Twelve months, okay? And let's look what happens, which is the month of Adar. So why would they have cast lots for, for twelve months? I think they're looking for some divine nature, because that's what often what they would do is cast lots, say, oh, that was of... of the, the divinity to give us permission to go and act how we want to act. I think it's ironic that for 12 months they're looking to cast lots against uh, Mordecai and it wouldn't happen. I, I and you know, Not that this is a huge theological matter, but I think that the Lord is still even con- in control of those kind of things. And he was giving Haman the chance to cool his jets, but he never relented. And so after 12 months the Lord, I think in his sovereignty, says, Okay, let's see what happens now, big Haman. You, you can't relent and get this right. Let's, let's let this go my out. And I think that's a sovereign aspect that, uh, of the Lord that is threaded through this entire account of Esther. Okay, now let's keep reading in verse 8. So the lots fall... And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. What what has he done here? You you get what Haman is plotting? The destruction of the Jews. But when he presents this to King Ahasuerus, how does he present it? Very vaguely. Have you ever noticed that's the way evil people do? They, they have a, a great agenda that's very specific to them. When they make it known to people, it's very, very broad and generic so that nobody really can assess what they're going after. And that's dangerous, okay? So let's look at uh, verse 9 now. If it please the king, he decreed, that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So what he says is, hey... These folks comprise a large portion of our culture. They have a lot of wealth, and if we destroy them, we can take all their resources, and we can pour it into your treasuries. So let me give you a little mathematics here. Uh, a talent is worth uh, is a weight of silver or gold, about 33 kilograms, about 75 pounds. Okay? So in modern value, that 10,000 talents of silver would be about $16 million worth. So that was a huge sum. So you think about Mortar, I mean Haman running through and, and setting off this uh, domino effect to have all the Jews destroyed and then to reclaim all of their property and possessions. He's going to make the king wealthy. Look at verse 10. So the king took this signet, his signet ring and gave it to Haman, the Agai, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. I think that's really interesting. Because here, Ahasuerus did not want that responsibility to come back to him. It's almost as if as if he is saying, man, I kind of know what you're after. You can go do this based on my uh, permission, but I'm not gonna be the one who's really motiv- motivated by this. Ultimately, you're the one who's responsible. You get that? It's like the king saying, I wash my hands of this. You can have all the money you do with it what you want, but I don't need it. But I'm just gonna give you permission. Okay? Now Look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mm. So here, Mordecai catches wind of, of Haman's plot against all the Jews. How does Mordecai respond? Humble, broken, prayerful Dependency. I want to give you guys this principle. When you're dealing with an evil person, someone who is attacking, trying to to force their plans on you, I think the first measure of response is this, faithful obedience to the Lord. Because I don't know if you're like me, but in those moments, my first reaction is not that. (laughs) I, I hate to confess that, but I tend to go, how can I reason? How can I become the attorney? How can I do these things? My mind starts churning about all the things I could do to step in and try to right the wrongs. And Mordecai's lesson to me is so profound. Fall upon my face, in dependence upon God, and be who he's calling me to be. Just obedient to him. Just obedient to him. Uh, you guys are going to hear probably a lot about Charles Spurgeon over the next couple years won't apologize, he's a great pastor um, preacher, speaker he's passed Um, but there was an illustration I was reading in some of my studies this week and and someone referenced this concept of we can either stand upon God's grace or we can fall on our faces upon God's grace and I think about how many times we, we have two little positions that we think oh we're grounded, we're good there's a whole lot of different stability when we're on our faces and in that close proximity and context you get the difference don't stand on your own fall on your face before the god before the lord depend upon his mercy and be intimate with him in that it's about that relationship where we are humbling ourselves in careful obedience to him let's keep reading turn over to chapter 5 verse 3 so, so, and let me give you a little bit basically there's a whole lot of conflict that happens in the public square between Mordecai and Haman and then we come into verse, uh, chapter 5 verse 3 and the king he invites Queen Esther in um, to the court she's pleaded to, to meet him which is a huge huge deal and the king said to her what is it Queen Esther what is your quest it shall be given you even half of my kingdom now jump down to verse 12 uh, Haman said even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to this feast uh, that she's prepared. He's gone home, uh, so basically Esther says, hey, I want to have a feast for you and Haman, and you're going to be the only key guest, and so Haman goes home and tells his wife. And that's where we find verse 12. Haman said to his, his wife, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. He thinks that he is going to be honored, but Esther's found out that, that Haman is about to kill all the Jews, and she's, she is trying to develop a plan to intercede on behalf of her people. Verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So he's still continuing to, to pursue this plot against Mordecai and the Jews. Now, listen to this, chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. I love that. Why could the king not sleep? Because I think God was intervening. Okay, there's that thread of the sovereignty of God behind the scenes working. Look at what happens. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So in the middle of the night, he wakes up and says, Somebody go get me these books. I can't get something off my mind, but I've got to get this settled. And so he starts uh, flipping through the chronicles of things that have happened in his kingdom. And this is what he notes. Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hand on hands on King Ahasuerus. So these two eunuchs that were guarding the king had devised a plot to kill him. Mordecai uncovered the plot and rescued the king from the hands of these two eunuchs. But he'd never been acknowledged for it. And verse 3, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court, now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. So you see the scene? King's woken up, spent all night thumbing through these uh, annals of the history. He realizes Mordecai has not ever been honored. He's going, okay, i got to honor Mordecai somehow. Who's here that I can consult with about how we do this rightly? Well, Haman happens to come in, Mordecai's nemesis and Haman thinks as the king brings him in great this is my chance I'm going to get to set up my honor and privilege look at verse 5 I'm 6 so Haman came in and the king said to him what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor so here's Mordecai. I mean Haman's thinking to himself alright and Haman said to himself whom would the king delight to honor more than me pride okay And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let the robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes uh, and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Then shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." So, y'all see what's happened. Mordecai is going to be honored. Haman thinks that it's going to be him. Haman presents this great plan, even though he's got the gallows set up. And there's this twist in the, the whole account, the twist in the plot. And Haman is ultimately brought in. So Esther holds, I'm going to summarize this, because Esther holds this banquet. The king asks her, what should be done? She says, basically, my people are about to be destroyed. And King Ahasuerus says, no, that's not going to happen. Who set this up? And she says, it was Haman. And Haman realizes in that moment that he's been caught. Now, in that, the king has Haman hung on the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai. Guess who's ridden through the town with the king's robes? Mordecai twist and everything i encourage you if you've never really read that account thoroughly go read the rest of of the account of esther it's a powerful testimony of god's sovereignty in the midst of a a people who have run rampant from the lord especially haman who has sought, sought out evil so let me give you a couple points first of all when you're dealing with someone evil be obedient Be obedient to the Lord, because through your obedience, the Lord can redeem the situation. I think that's a great example with Mordecai. I think another step is this, to give that person who is evil the gift of defeat. That's hard, because it takes a lot of creativity and wisdom. But see, that's ultimately what Haman received, was the gift of defeat. And and I, I know that we're dealing with a secular king. I almost wonder what had happened if King Ahasuerus had been a believer. Would he have actually had Haman hung on the gallows? I don't know. The the gift of defeat may have just been enough. Okay? Because I think about David and Saul. When David was running from Saul and he went into the cave of, I think it was Adama, and he found Saul actually going to the bathroom. And he could have killed Saul in that moment, but instead he cut a corner of the garment off of Saul's robe. And he went out. And he said, from the mountainside across a little valley, King Saul, I had you in my hands. And Saul repented in that moment. And I don't think all the way rightly, okay? But, but there was a gift of defeat that David gave King Saul. It was creative. It, it was powerful. It was sobering. That's what the gift of defeat should, should do. And in that moment, what did David especially do? He humbled himself, himself and said even though I'm to be king I'm not going to take how I acquire this kingship into my hands I'm going to trust the sovereignty of God to bring this about in the right time and I think the Lord honored that in David's life and it made him a better leader in the long run how do you hand someone the gift of defeat Can I, I'm going to give you another principle that may help you with that and that is this that you have to be prepared have to be prepared now th- this is a crude illustration but hopefully it helps um, we started doing christmas shopping through amazon a lot of online stuff are, are y'all like me okay so but we have children that live at home through december um so they're they're even though they're at college they're back at home so guess what we're doing constantly We're like watching our emails going, hey, this package is gonna arrive today and we're trying to intercept it so they don't see who it's delivered from and all those kind of things. And then we gotta hide it. So there's always this preparation, right? And so one of the things that, why do we do that? Because we want them to anticipate the gift when they unwrap it, not going, ah, I already know what I'm getting. I mean, that's cool and all, but it's just not as fun, is it? There's something special about unwrapping that unknown gift and seeing the expression on the face of someone when they get that. Now, I I know we're talking about a gift there, but there's still a gift given of defeat that can shock someone into an awareness that they need to respond rightly to God and repent. And that takes good preparation. It means you may need to be in a sense, checking and filing and praying about things so that just like we are doing that with Amazon and, and the emails and all that stuff, preparing to handle those things rightly and wisely. I know it's a crude illustration, but hopefully you get the point. So here's, here's the, the last thing that, that I want to give you this morning because I think this is where it really gets down to a personal reflection point. The problem is, When people struggle and are are acting in evil ways, they have a very keen sense of what is driving us. Now, here's my point in sharing that. If you're living for earthly matters, what's going to happen is they're going to find that those things are what you value because they're testing. They're trying to find the weakness in your faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. And so if you have false gods before you, they're going to find those things and it's going to lead to further struggle for you. So the, the primary way for us to defend ourselves against that evil person, I want you to hear this really clearly, is to live surrendered lives to Jesus Christ. Because if He is who you're living for, okay, you got to struggle with the evil person. What's he going to do? He's going to redeem it. He will, even if you're living disobedient. He's working to redeem those things because we're all in process. But the more keenly, the more uh, you, you live surrendered to Jesus, the better off you will be. And folks, I know David talked about this last week, but it's a real simple principle, but we don't get it right. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also if we treasure the things of this world and we go back to what I shared out of Romans 3 and Ephesians 2, those things are not going to satisfy us. Let me me give you another passage that just jumps into my mind. 1 John 2 15 16 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and listen to this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And listen to this last part. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I actually learned that passage through a a Christian band called the 77s. Allison, I know you're a 77s fan. The 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 way they worded that is the lust of the flesh, the eyes of the uh, of life, um, lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life drain the life right out of me. I love that simplistic look at that because if we're living for those things, we won't be fulfilled. Because they will drain the life out of us. And the evil person is poking, trying to find where there is the kink in the armor of our spiritual walk. And if we are not aware of those things and we're living for those things to satisfy us, the Lord is not. And we'll struggle to overcome those attacks of evil people that I think the evil one has put in to keep us drained from finding the hope the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I want to ask you in conclusion this morning. Is there someone evil in your life that you're wrestling with? Okay, how are you praying? How are you praying? How are you falling on your face depending upon the grace of God? How are you turning everything over in your life to Jesus? How is He being your treasure? How are you finding your greatest satisfaction in in Him, because I know if you're like me, you ride ebbs and flows of that. And when you're in the ebb and things are bad, can I just encourage you? Look to the Lord. If there's something in, that is in your life that you're clinging onto, that is sinful, repent of that, so that you'll find freedom, so that you can handle those schemes and the plots that they're they're placing in your life, so that they can be redeemed for the grace of God, for his glory, for your peace, for your edification, for your sanctification. I know that's a lot of stuff. But the hope is that we would walk rightly with the Lord and experience his grace and peace ultimately. And I go back to Ephesians 2.10, that we be, uh, be that we are his workmanship created for good works that we have been prepared beforehand, that we should be walking in him. Okay? That's, that's where we need to be. Now, let me also address this. Somebody in here may be going, you know what? I've actually been that evil one. I have not surrendered to the, the lordship of Christ. And I have been walking in my flesh. Can I tell you, like I said earlier, that was me at a point in my life. Don't be satisfied with that. God is calling you to freedom.